words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When they teach you how to preach, and I'm sure when they teach individuals how to give speeches and so forth, uh, there is a certain illustration that is often used in regard to that of an airplane. And many of you, of course, probably all of you, have been on an airplane, and you know the basic rundown of how an airplane works. You get into the plane, you get onto the strip, and you start speeding ahead, you go up, and then you come down. And in some ways, that's what a sermon is supposed to be like, and a speech is supposed to be like. And so what an instructor, a preaching instructor, or an author of a a preaching or, or a speech book would say, that you need to have some sort of introduction to introduce the material to the congregation or to the period, to the people. You need to have a main body or subject matter for the sermon within the middle. And then at the end, you need to have a conclusion. And so where that analogy of an airplane comes into the mix, where this illustration comes, is that an introduction should be like a takeoff. So you, you start out slow, you begin to gain some speed, and then you begin to take flight. The, the, the main portion of your sermon is where you're flying at whatever altitude you have chosen to, to be at. And then the conclusion of your sermon is that descent into the landing. And here this morning, although this is not a sermon per se, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Paul is beginning his descent, as it were, in regard to this letter to the Colossians. He's beginning to come down from his cruising altitude and starts his conclusion. So we've seen him take off and eventually get into so many wonderful truths in regard to Christ. All of those great, magnificent things that we've seen specifically in chapter 1 of the truths of Jesus. And he's creator, he's sovereign, he's all of these wonderful things. He's, He's been at a cruising altitude where we have learned much concerning the church. And we have learned much concerning even our personal lives. And now Paul begins his descent. He begins his descent with a few final exhortations or admonishing admonishments to these Colossian people. Three main exhortations, and these are what they are if you're taking notes. Be watchful in prayer, be wise in your actions, and be winsome in your speech. Be wise in your actions. or you, be, be watchful in prayer, be wise in your actions, and be winsome in speech. So again, Paul has taught us so much a truth within the book of Colossians concerning who God is. Who is God? He's taught us about Christ Himself. He's taught us about Jesus as a person of the Trinity. How Jesus rules and how He reigns. How He is the Creator and Sovereign and all so much more. He's taught us about how we are to live together as a church. He's taught us how to fight against and ward off false teachers from entering into our church And he's also taught us how to conduct ourselves within our family and how the authority structure works within the family. And all of that has been wonderful. And so he has taught us about God. He has taught us about the church. He has taught us about our families. And now what he is going to do is talk to us about those who do not know God. Those who are separated from God. So when you consider people who are not part of our church family, and they're not part of any church family, and they're within our towns, and they do not know the Lord, how should we think about them? How should we address them? How should we interact with those people who are not part of the greater church? How are we to engage them? And the first thing that we need to see from our text this morning is something that Paul exhorts us to do even before we begin to engage with other people, and that is pray. Look at verse 2 again in chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
Every now and again, I hear of a certain individual who is referred to as a prayer warrior. Have you ever heard that before? Like, oh yeah, that person, they are such a prayer warrior. Guaranteed, there are people popping up in your mind even now. And what we often mean by that is that there is a certain person who is tenacious in their prayers, right? They are avid in their prayers. They're very serious about it. And you can even tell by by the way they live their lives and, and the way they talk that they are serious about prayer. The kind of people who seem to have that direct connection with the Lord, right? I mean, their Wi-Fi is never on the fritz. Their cable is always coming through. It's like it's always working. They, they just seem to have that direct line. They're always connected. And the first exhortation that Paul gives to us is that we all should be such prayer warriors. We should all continue steadfastly in our prayers. That they should mark us as, as Christians, So this is a common exhortation that you see all over the Bible, like over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Luke says that Jesus says, pray always and not to give up or to become discouraged. So there's even a a how do you pray and and you don't become discouraged. The way you even feel as you're praying, it's not a matter of becoming discouraged. You're encouraged because you're talking to the only one who can help. I've heard it said by one theologian in particular where somebody asked, well, why pray, or why pray um, if God is sovereign? If God is just going to work it all out in the end anyway, why are you going to pray? And the response was, why pray if He isn't? If God isn't sovereign, then why in the world would you pray? If God couldn't reach down and, and touch an individual like this dear girl we're praying for, or any of one, any that you know that are ill, or any that you know that do not know the Lord, what would be the point of praying if God is not sovereign? We think of the famous verse over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. In other words, don't stop praying. A couple of weeks ago, all of the community groups looked at the end of Acts chapter 2, where you really see that there are several pillars that the early church was built upon. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And then the fourth thing is they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer, which is precisely what Paul is calling us back to this morning. So don't give up on praying. To continue in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. There's a lot of things that keep us from praying, aren't there? I think, I think for all of us, if we were to consider our Christian lives, and we were to say, you know what? I'm pretty good at reading my Bible. I want to hear from the Lord through this word. But I guarantee most of all, all of us would say, I struggle with prayer. And one of the big things that holds us back from prayer is busyness. I mean, it's the easiest thing for me to wake up. My feet hit the floor, get the coffee rolling, and sit down and begin to, to work without even praying. Because I'm busy, right? You're busy. We have stuff to do. It's, it's daylight. It's time to start getting things done. And I know that you feel the same. That you wake up, you get breakfast, you kiss your spouse goodbye, and you go off to work, or you deal with the kids all day, and there's not a minute to spend time in prayer. But if we are going to be a godly people, we must be about the business of prayer. I love what Martin Luther says, the great reformer. He said one time, I have so much to do today that I'm going to spend three hours in prayer. I have so much to do today. I'm going to spend three hours in prayer. 
You won't find three hours of prayer in a self-help book in becoming more productive. The first thing won't be spend time in prayer. It's not going to be that because that would be time wasting. Three hours of prayer would be considered a waste to so many people. But if we're going to be obedient to the Apostle Paul, this exhortation here, we must be in the business like Luther was of being in prayer. Prayer is a mark of a Christian man or woman. Churches used to sing, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. That calls me from a world of care. We must be about it. And Paul exhorts us to it, this business of prayer. In fact, he gives a couple of ways in which we should be praying. He says we should be watchful in our prayers. And he says that we should be thankful in our prayers. This word for watchful has this connotation of staying alert or staying awake within our prayer. I can remember, like it was yesterday, our church growing up, we had a wana. And there was this phrase that one of the leaders used to say in one of his lessons. And he would say it over and over within the lessons. And all of us kids really liked it. But he would say, stay alert. And all the kids would respond, stay alive, stay alert, stay alive, stay alert, stay alive. All through the uh, little message that he would give. And the corresponding principle here is that if we're going to have vitality in the Christian life, and we're going to stay alive, and not only stay alive, but stay vital, then we must be alert in prayer. We must be watchful in our prayer. To give you a biblical example, you think of Peter, James, and John. They go with Jesus on the night that he's betrayed, and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And Jesus says, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray, but you three, I want you to stay over here and I want you to pray over here. And of course, Jesus comes back and what does he find? He finds his disciples asleep. And he says to them these words, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He tells them like Paul tells us this morning. He says, to watch, to to be watchful in your prayer, to be alert, to be awake. And if you want to keep away from sin, and if you want to resist the temptation of the devil, then you need to be watchful in prayer. You need to stay alert in order to stay alive. The kind of person that pours his or her time and energy and desires into prayer is the kind of person who will not have the time, the energy, and the desire to sin. The famous Baptist Puritan John Bunyan said this, Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. And that's true, isn't it? That you scan your own life, and when you're spending that time in prayer to the Lord, and when you're, when you're watchful in prayer, sin begins to wane. It begins to dissipate. That you're loving the relationship with your Lord. You love the communion with Him in prayer. But when the prayer goes, the communication from your end is gone. And the communication from the Lord's end through his word is gone. And we see how easy it is to sin against him. Brothers and sisters, we must be watchful in prayer. The condition of our souls is at stake. We're to be watchful in prayer, but we're also to be thankful in our prayer. We're to pray pray with thanksgiving. We come to this time of year right within the fall. And we love this time because uh, harvest for some of you. And we consider God's faithfulness to us over the course of the year. But the Christian ought to be thankful 24-7. And maybe the question is coming to your mind. Well, well, how do I stoke those flames of gratitude in my own life? how, How can I stoke the gratitude within my heart that as I'm praying that I will be thankful? Charles Spurgeon once said that Christians are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. This is how we function, right? 
That when, when something bad happens, trials happen, issues happen, what do we do? We get, we get that nail out or whatever, that hammer, we start etching it right in the marble. Look at all these issues. Look at all these struggles and problems that I've been with. And then something good comes along and God brings a blessing and we start writing it in the sand. Oh, look what happened. This is great. And then what happens? We remember what happened in the marble and we forget because the, the water comes and washes away the sand. And he has blessed us so much, hasn't he? He's blessed us. And he has given us so much to be thankful. So, so how do we stoke those flames of gratitude? How do we kind of reverse that process and begin etching our, our blessings in marble and then the, the struggles may be in the sand and let the Lord deal with those and wash them away? When your mind falls to maybe one of your children or your spouse or to your church, does not a sense of gratitude grow within your heart to God for, for even what wasn't there moments earlier? That, that three minutes earlier, you weren't feeling necessarily thankful and you start thinking about the blessings God has given to you and it just it stokes you, the flames of gratitude, doesn't it? Dear friends, at times that I am unhappiest is when I forget to remind myself or I neglect to remind myself of what God has done for me in Christ. But how wonderfully gratitude-stoking is it to consider the immeasurable sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, his condescension to earth, his suffering on our behalf, his victorious resurrection, the fact that even now he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ever living to intercede on your behalf. Does not the truth of the gospel stoke your heart to to flames of gratitude? We often sing at our church, My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace, and he gave me life again. Friends, if you never experience gratitude for what Jesus has done for you, then it may very well be that you don't know him at all. Because if you knew Christ... And when you considered what he has done, it would stoke something within you. If you knew him and you understood what he did for you, your heart would burn brightly. And so we are exhorted to pray, generally speaking, with watchfulness and thankfulness. But Paul then gives a specific prayer request. Notice verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what is Paul's prayer request? What is he asking for? Paul's prayer request and his heartbeat as he is in prison is the mission. His prayer request is the mission. Now, if I go to prison for preaching the good news, I can guarantee that if I were to write Windsor Christian Fellowship a letter, it probably would not be a prayer request for the mission. It would be, pray that God would get me out of here. Pray that God would release me. I don't want to be in prison. I miss my family. I miss you guys. Pray that God will release me. But Paul's prayer request is the mission. And so if I can paraphrase, paraphrase kind of what he says here. He says, hey, Colossians, I'm in prison. I'm in house arrest in Rome, but I want you to do me a favor. Would you pray for me that I would boldly speak the gospel? 
So the, the gospel and, and, and kind of making out this whole fuss about Jesus is the reason that I'm in pres- prison. But will you pray that I'll have more opportunity to preach the gospel, to preach Christ, that the doors will be swung open for the preaching of Christ? Seriously? Doesn't pray for deliverance. He doesn't pray to be let go. Even another time when Paul was in prison with Silas. Do you remember this over in Acts chapter 16? You don't have to, 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 to turn over there. But Paul is in prison in Acts chapter 16 with Silas. And what are they doing while they're in prison? They're kind of taking the extra opportunity. They're singing hymns, right? This is, this is a good time. We have nothing else to do. Let's go ahead and worship. right? So that's what they're doing within the prison cell. I love that. And so they're in jail. They're singing songs. Then all of a sudden, what happens? This this earthquake, right? This earthquake comes and starts shaking everything about. And the jail doors open. And all the chains and shackles fall off all the prisoners. And if I'm Paul and Silas, I'm thinking, man, that is some God deliverance right there, right? God could only cause this earthquake. So this is our our get out of jail free card, right? We're just going to hop up and we're going to go out. And when the jailer wakes up and he sees what happens, he's about to kill himself. And what does Paul say? Because he stops his hymn singing and he says, hey, don't do that. All of us are sitting in our cells. And what is the immediate response of that jailer? What must I do to be saved? You're different than me. You're, you're singing these praises to God. Probably had overheard them talking. This earthquake happens. They're all free to go. They could have all run out, completely overwhelmed the jailer. And what happens? What must I do to be saved? You're all sitting here. There's no reason. And here you are. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you'll be saved. And so, boom, the jailer gets saved, his family gets saved, they all get baptized, and then they eat supper together. And friends, this is exactly how God works. He works through what is a trial for us to advance the kingdom of God. And so God had used the time that Paul was in jail with Silas And what Paul wants while he's under house arrest in Rome is the same exact thing. He wants the gospel to advance. So Paul's prayer request here is remarkable. Church, don't pray that the doors of my my cell or my house will fling open. I'll just stay seated in here anyway. But pray that the doors for the gospel will fling open. Brothers and sisters, can, can, God can and will use the situations in your life, and you may even feel like you're in prison sometimes, and He'll use those things for the advancement of the gospel. God is in the business of using tragedy for the advancement of the kingdom. He has used martyrdom to grow the church throughout the centuries. For the last 2,000 years, it's commonly said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He has used tragedy in the lives of each and every one of us to bring further glory to himself. When a tragedy or a situation like maybe Paul is in comes upon us and we're imprisoned because of what we believe in the gospel and the word, will we be praying that God would get us out of there as soon as possible? Or while we are there, will we pray that God would advance the kingdom? You see, for most of us, myself included, we would have the opposite response to imprisonment or to persecution that Paul had. For crying out loud, we don't like to pray very loudly in a restaurant because we're afraid somebody might give us a little bit of a glance. Like, what are they doing? And we think we're being persecuted. We walked through the Gospel of Matthew a few years ago, and in that Gospel, you see John the Baptist, and while he's in prison, he questions whether Jesus is the Messiah, whether he is the one to come. And John was doubting and thinking that he may have missed something. 
And the temptation for us is the total opposite of what Paul is showing us here. He's saying pray to advance the kingdom. And when something bad happens to us, we automatically come to the point of, why, why is this happening? That somehow maybe, maybe God isn't who he says that he is. Maybe somehow God is less sovereign. Maybe somehow Jesus is less of the king that we thought that he was. And if we don't have the context of God's goodness and his faithfulness and love to put the hardships within, then it is going to feel like, why is this happening to me? But when we consider the context of his goodness and faithfulness and his love and all those things, when the bad things happen, we know that he is going to bring those about and make things better for himself, going to bring himself glory. He's going to advance his kingdom through those situations. And so Paul doesn't ask the church to pray to release him from his chains, but that any chains that may be holding the gospel back would be advanced. Do you have a confidence in the gospel? Do you think of certain people and say, they'll never trust in Christ. They'll never believe. Do you have a confidence in the gospel? Do you have a confidence in the word of God? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 says, I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Is that how you think of it? Is that how you think of God's word? Paul was asking for prayer in regard to the mission. Be watchful in prayer. Be thankful in prayer. But pray specifically that the doors would be flung open in regard to the word going forward. And so consider your own life. Consider your own prayer. Do you pray evangelistically? God, would you open the doors of the gospel to me? Would your feet hit the ground in the morning? And again, you grab your Bible and you begin to pray and and you're reminded of what God has done for you in Christ. And you say at the end, you say, God, would you please open a door for the gospel for me today? Open a door for the ministry, for my fellow church members or for our church leaders. May the gospel go forward without hindrance. Our prayer requests tend to be so self-focused, but you don't find a self-focus in this prayer from Paul. You find a kingdom focus. He's not self-focused. He's kingdom focused. And so how are you in your prayers? Are you focused on yourself or are you focused on the kingdom? When you consider even how you share prayer requests, I know the tendency for most of us is to share requests, whether it's in community group or to one another, and it'll often be on the level of physical wellness, physical well-being, healings, and all of that is obviously a very good thing to pray for. But how often has somebody come up to you and said, I'm praying and, and I'm seeking to bring the gospel to my, my aunt or my family or my friend or my coworker. Would you please pray for them? Pray for them by name. Pray with me. Let's get our heads together on this and spend time in prayer and be strategic in how we bring the gospel to them. Do we, do we pray on that kind of level? Or is it maybe because we're not kingdom focused and we're not sharing the gospel and we're not concerned with other people's spiritual well-being that we don't share requests for them? Christian, be steadfast in your prayer. Be watchful in it. Be thankful in it. Pray specifically for the advancement of God's kingdom. But the next admonitions that he gives have specifically do, like the one before, but these two as well, with outsiders. Look with me at verse 5. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So what Paul is getting at here is really the, the rubber meeting the road in regard to our own evangelism. That we are wise in how we interact with unbelievers. That we speak in a gracious way. That we answer them well. 
It's important to remember as we interact with unbelievers that we are going to think about Jesus the way that, they, that they're going to think about Jesus and the way that we talk about Jesus and act in regard to Jesus. That what so-called followers of Jesus say they believe or what they do with their lives, that is going to be the unbeliever's assumption of who Jesus is. And so we're called to imitate Christ, to be his followers, to be his disciples. He's our rabbi, right? And, and we're to reflect him in everything that we do. And so like we looked at last week in regard to being a slave of Christ, do we display that in our lives? Gandhi himself once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And when we step back and think, well, who really cares what Gandhi thinks, right? But this verse seems to indicate that we should be considerate of the thoughts of unbelievers. And Gandhi, as an unbeliever, appreciated what he read about Christ, but he did not enjoy his interactions with Christians. You see, God wants you to be mixed with unbelievers in regard to your relationship so that you may bring the gospel to them. There will come a day when the sheep are separated from the goats, when the wheat is separated from the tares. But in our current day, God wants us to be involved with unbelievers, to walk wisely in and among them. In the end of verse 5, he says, making the best use of time. And I think that the idea here is, is that what other translations have said is that we make the most of each opportunity with unbelievers. Do you make the most of each opportunity when you spend time with people who are not Christians? Within your dealings with outsiders, with unbelievers, are you making something of the opportunities that you have with them? Do, they ha- do, do, do you take the opportunities that you've been given to be salt and to be light, as Jesus calls us to in Matthew chapter 5? I think what Paul's getting across here is that the Christians were to, were to pray for him, and we are to pray for each other to be part of the gospel's advancement, that all of us would have the opportunity to see the gospel go through an open door. But in the end of verse 5, he's admonishing us to take those opportunities as those opportunities come. So how foolish would it be, consider that, to pray for, for open doors for our church leaders and for our families and friends and to even pray for open doors for us and then God brings those open doors to us and then we neglect to speak the gospel into those situations. We're to take every opportunity to speak of the gospel that the Lord gives. But notice in verse 6 again, the manner in which we engage unbelievers. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you are to answer each person. The words of a Christian are to be gracious. They're to be seasoned with salt. This is, of course, is a, is a metaphor. I've eaten with many of you, and, and, and many of you, myself included, one of the first things that we do when we get to the dinner table is we reach for the salt. Right? We haven't even tasted the food, and we reach for the salt, and we begin shaking it all over the food. Why? Because it's salt we like. Maybe not so much the food. Or even bad food. The salt makes it taste a whole lot better, doesn't it? And so that's what we do. We, we want that salty taste within our mouth. And in the context of our relationships with outsiders, the words that we speak should taste salty. They should taste good to those whom we speak with. That as we answer their questions and as we speak the gospel to them, that we do so in a way that is tasteful. We do so in a way that is winsome. One author has said, Paul envisions a church expected to hold its own in the social setting of marketplace, baths, and and meal tables, and to win attention by the attractiveness of its life and speech. That in the day-to-day, 
That is, we go to the grocery store. We all don't go to common baths like they may have done. At least I don't think many of you do. But I don't go to a big common bath. We have, we have a couple over at the house. So I don't go to a common one or the YMCA or anything like that. But they had common baths back then. They had common restrooms back then. They had all kinds of things. And as they were within those places, God wanted their words to be seasoned with salt. And as we go to the grocery store, and as we go to work, and as we interact with our family, as we interact with our other, and those who are, who, are, who are not Christians, we are to speak in a way that is winsome, that is gracious, that is seasoned with salt, that in a way that brings attractiveness to Christ. You notice that Paul is concerned that each of us are able to answer the questions of unbelievers in a winsome way. And this is a key thing. How many of you are able to answer questions of your unbelieving friends or family? If somebody poses you a question, is it like, oh, I don't really know. Let me, let me, let me go take some time. And that's fine. It, it, a good answer oftentimes is, I don't know. If you don't know, don't fudge it. Just say, I don't know. Find the answer and come back. But are we spending our lives trying to dig up answers? To, to know the answer so that we can do, as Paul says here, to be able to answer somebody in a, in a winsome way? The Apostle Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so you're always prepared to make a defense. You should always be prepared for these conversations so that you can give a defense concerning the things of God. But you do it in a specific way, Peter says, with gentleness and with respect. I think the internet brings the worst out of us. And it's mind-boggling to see the kinds of things that so-called Christians put on the internet. The, the last way you would describe so many things, because we're hiding behind these screens, the last way you would describe what so many people have to say is, wow, that was so gentle. That was so respectful. Right? You don't read stuff on the internet and think, wow, so respectful, so gentle. But brothers and sisters, we're commanded to handle ourselves in such a way with unbelievers. Another author said our life and speech should be such that people can see the freedom that Jesus brings and get a glimpse of what it means to have new life in Christ. Next week, we'll be in our final sermon in our series on Colossians. And so we're coming to the close of our book, and Paul is going to continue that descent toward the end, as it were. And what an incredible way to do so, that as he begins his descent, he's concerned with these things. Our watchfulness and our gratitude and prayer are praying for the advancement of the gospel and the way in which we handle ourselves with unbelievers. In a book like Colossians that's filled with so much concerning doctrine and church matters, these verses, they just stick out so clearly for us to show us the heart of the Apostle Paul. A heart that has the advancement of the gospel and his interactions with unbelievers in focus. And so brothers and sisters, are you watchful? Are you thankful in prayer? Do you walk in wisdom toward outsiders, toward unbelievers, making the most of all of the opportunities that you have with them? And are the words that you speak winsome and gracious and salty to those you speak them to? Lord, thank you for your word again. We privileged to be here and to sit under it. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to pray first to go second, to pray, and then be able to answer all of our friends and family and those we speak the gospel to. Give us, give us a burden to preach and speak the gospel like the Apostle Paul had, and give us the ability to be able to respond in prayer, or respond with, with the right kind of a, a words and answers to our unbelieving friends and family. 
Lord, there are so many within this room that know unbelievers, and many of them. Help us to interact in word or deed in a way that would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. We stand with me as we sing our final song together.